Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Exodus 12, 29 through Exodus 13, a great cry in Egypt. We're at the point now where we've been through most of the plagues. We have one more to go. Pharaoh has steadfastly refused to let the children of Israel go. Sometimes he'd say, yeah, you know, okay, you can go. And then he'd change his mind. And, and we read that God hardened his heart. And I just, I know that God hardened his heart, but I'm trying to imagine what his thought process was. I thought that it was sort of like, well, you know, I'm the only one who's standing for the gods of Egypt. I'm the only one who understands the place of the gods in life and the Egyptians, people, and me as Pharaoh, and I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to model the kind of behavior, the kind of faith that the people of Egypt should be having right now in light of this upstart god who will eventually fail. But I'm going to hold firm because the rest of my nation cannot. It sounds almost noble, doesn't it? Except it's completely wrong. This was a people, a nation, because of how they saw themselves in the world, they were able to take a group of people that lived within their borders peacefully for hundreds of years, and that's the Hebrews, and put them to work for slaves. But before they put them to work for slaves, they had a period of what we would call today systematic genocide, where um, the infant male children were, um, were killed. What a terrible thing. And it was okay. And how could it be okay? But we know that it could be okay because we've seen in human history, even recent human history, World War II, um, the former Yugoslavia, other places around the world where people can be like this to other people and it's okay. And the regular people seem to just allow it and go along with it. And that's what happened in Egypt. The Egyptian people went along with what was going on. They thought it was okay. Maybe some people really didn't think it was a good idea, but they weren't going to say or do anything about it. Pharaoh had his last chance to let the children of Israel go. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And that's where we're going to pick up. Um, Moses has already given instructions for the first Passover dinner, which I said before was like eating um, dinner, dinner in an airport. Okay? You're, you're eating, but you're not settled down. You're getting ready to go somewhere. Your bags are packed. Um, and they had to take a hiss of branches, really, because they didn't have brushes, and take the blood of a goat and slap it up and to the sides of the sill, which is kind of gross when I think about it. But it's what God asked them to do, and it's what they did. And anybody who's under that roof lived, people and animals. And, and when I say people, it's really the firstborn. And when I say the firstborn, it's the firstborn males. I checked on that because I wasn't really sure. I said, well, is it really the firstborn males? Yes. The scholarly consensus is firstborn males. 
So, um, of people and of animals. And we're going to pick up with Exodus 12, 29 to 32. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, and as you have said, be gone and bless me also. So it took that for Pharaoh to finally say, Go. I've heard this story when I was a child and an adult, and I, maybe I try to a little bit imagine what it was like, and I can't because I, I, I've really never lost anyone who was close to me suddenly in that way. When, when people I, related to me have died, they've almost always been old, really old. And so I haven't had to go through that tragedy personally, so I, I don't have any feelings to relate to here. Uh, maybe some of you do. It, it must be a terrible thing to lose somebody. And, and it could be firstborn who is an infant. It could be a firstborn who is 70, 80, 90 years old. And as I was telling Pastor Paul before, livestock, how do you know what, who's firstborn and who isn't? Usually you don't. Well, on this night they did. We're going to take a quick look back at Exodus 1.22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you will cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And that's the systematic genocide I was talking about before. God has a perfect memory. And part of his judgment was uh, death. They had um, killed some of the Hebrews. They were going to lose some people as part of the judgment. Again, God is merciful. He didn't destroy Egypt. But he let these plagues affect them in such a way that they, they would know that it was the God of Egypt who was doing it because none of their gods seemed to be able to stop them. And, and in, in different symbolic ways, uh, touching every aspect of, of their life, including the life of the firstborn, which is important because like many cultures, um, there was the idea that the firstborn had responsibility, the firstborn had extra training, the firstborn would control most of the wealth of the nation and if you were Pharaoh, and of the family if you were just a family. Moving on. Or am I going the right wrong? Well, going the wrong way. Let's go this way. Okay. Exodus twelve, thirty-three to thirty-six. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, 
we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes and on their shoulders. And now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and had asked the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given people favor in the sight of Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. So for hundreds of years, the Hebrews had lived in their borders and for a long time, um, for a few decades at least, they, they, they were slaves, not being paid for the work that they were doing. And now in a way they were getting paid. I have seen it uh, on um, the History Channel and military history that the idea here was that the um, Hebrews went into the Egyptian households and they, they were uh, sort of strong-arming them, getting them to give uh, their gold and their precious articles. I don't think it was like that at all. I think instead you had people who really up until very recently had been slaves and technically they still were coming and saying, uh, I'd like, I need some stuff, maybe some gold, some clothing. Do you think you could give me some? And it'd be kind of like that. But the people, they've seen the plagues, they've seen the power of the God of the children of Israel. They've seen it, they've heard it. And they were all too willing to give them anything. It's like, oh yeah, you want gold? Here, take, take this, take that. Oh, silver, How about you want some silver? Oh, I got some jewelry, want some gems. Anything to keep them happy because they didn't want anything else hap to happen to them. So they were willing to, to do anything. And I, I think you could almost, out of that particular scene in what's really kind of a terrible story, that's almost comedy. And I'm sure that somebody could write it up to look like comedy where you have the, the children of Israel coming in sort of nervous, asking the questions that they were told to ask, not sure of the answer they were going to get, and then having the Egyptians who were being asked stumbling over themselves to give whatever they could to these people and that hopefully nothing else bad would happen to them. So, Exodus 12, 37 to 39. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sakoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. A mixed multitude went up with them also in flocks and herds and a great deal of livestock. And they baked unleavened cakes of dough which they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So they were already told, get up, get ready to go. But as it turned out, the Egyptians wanted to hurry them along and, and get out faster. Because the faster the Hebrews were gone, the sooner things were going to be safe again. Things were going to turn back to normal again. The Egyptian people had wanted no part of the Hebrews at this point. They wanted them gone. And by the way, when I uh, pronounce names of cities and, and of people, I don't try to find out how to pronounce them. I just take my best shot. Uh, please consider that as um, for entertainment purposes. Okay? You can see Ramesses is at the top, and then Sakath is, is 
sort of south and east, and then you have some other cities around it. It was a short distance that they had gone. I just wanted you to see where they were going. And uh, from verse 40 to 42, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for the bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all of the children of Israel throughout their generations. So, 430 years. And when we began Exodus, it was close to 400 years. And I said back then, it was like imagining Plymouth, 1620, the pilgrims coming. It's a similar timeline from there to the present day as to how long they lived in Egypt, which is really a long time when you think about it, right? Except that in our world, technology moves so much further ahead than it did back then. It's like you go 100 years back then, not much changes. Twelve forty-three to 47. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, and then you've circumcised him, then he may eat it, but a sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. And you shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor will you break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. They're getting ready to leave the country. They're being rushed to leave the country. God picks this moment to go to Moses and Aaron and give them a review. Does anybody think that this is strange? Because I thought it was strange. But it wasn't strange, and here's why. We just read this, so we're looking back. We're really not looking. We're looking, let's go back four minutes ago <laughs> and look at this again. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children, and a mixed multitude went up with them also, flocks and herds, and a great deal of livestock. Oh, wait a minute, mixed multitude. Everybody see that? Mixed multitude? Okay. Means that there were some people who joined the Hebrews. Could have been some Egyptians, they don't say. In my opinion, it was mostly people who were like them, servants and slaves, and, and perhaps people like them who came from the same part of the world from Canaan and, and spoke a similar language. It might have even been that some of them could have been friends of some of the Israelites. It could have been even, the Bible doesn't say one way or another, that there could have been some families invited to stay with them and say, somebody said, please, bring your family, stay in my house tonight, it's very important. Come, bring your children, bring everybody in your household, it'll be a little cramped, but I want you here with us because you're friends of ours. 
possible. Also, it could have been people who, sadly, they're coming, but they're in tears because they lost people in their household. Well, why would you go with the Hebrews if you were going to do that? Well, this is a God that's done plague after plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians, and their gods couldn't stop them. And now they're going to leave. Is it reasonable to believe that they thought that a God that powerful to do that would be a God powerful enough to take care of the Hebrews and to take care of them? And so for that reason, the first Passover happens. You have a group of people that were not originally Hebrews. And they could not participate in Passover unless they had joined, unless they believed in the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they did not come from that line, that the men were circumcised. But that was an it's an emblem. So if a man undergoes that, then certainly their family believes in the God, the same God, and they can join in. There's parallels between that and what we do here. People get baptized, and, and uh, we believe here at Calvary Chapel, um, baptism is by immersion after somebody has made a confession of faith. And that's something that we only do to people who have a confession of faith. We don't just do that and say, oh, yeah, come on. You can come visit. You know, if you'd like, you can get baptized. No, we don't say that. I mean, it, it, it sounds crazy to say that, right? Okay. It would be similarly crazy to have people come in for such a solemn feast as Passover and not be part of that people. They could become part of the people, but they had to be part of that people to participate. Communion is a better example, I think, than, than um, baptism for us because we have what's called an open communion. Believe it or not, some churches have a closed communion. Only members of that church can participate in communion. They say it's to preserve the sanctity of the communion. They say it's to protect the people who are participating. They don't want somebody to participate unworthily and, and die, even though I think that's an extrapolation. I don't think that really happens. We have an open communion, so anybody who is willing to partake, if somebody wants to come in, they're not a Christian, and they want to partake, we don't have the communion police. We might have a, a pastor who's a cop, but we don't have the communion police, okay? Um, because we believe that those decisions are between the individual and God. But moving along, Exodus 12, 48 to 51. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on that very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. And that ends chapter 12, starting with chapter 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man 
and beast, it is mine. Funny how he says that now. We, the last plague killed all the firstborn. But here he's saying, consecrate to me all the firstborn. And continuing with verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to his fathers, to your fathers to give you, a land of flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Verses 6 to 10. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters, and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So it's, being, it's something to remember what the Lord's done. Pastor Vinny just preached on seven feasts of the Lord. If you haven't heard it, go to the website or iTunes. Um, if you use podcast apps on your um, Android phone, it's worth listening to. We've just covered two of the seven feasts. One is Passover, and the second one is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which um, references the time that they had to leave in, in haste so quickly that they didn't have a chance to put leavening in their bread. Now, some, some people in the front, some of you girls, you might say, well, what's leavened bread? Oh, I don't understand. Well, you know how bread's all fluffy? Okay, that's because they put yeast in the bread, and the bread rises, and then they bake it. It's cool. If you ever get to see it, it's really cool to watch. Um, well, you don't stand there and watching it. You have to like leave it and then go do something and then come back and check on it, and you'll see that it's rising. If you stand there, you'll get really bored. But, um, and the bread with no leaven is really, really it's flat. It's like a giant cracker. So, so when they say unleavened bread, it's matzo. You might have heard of matzo because we live, we're in New Jersey. <laughs> But um, it, that's what unleavened bread is. It's like a big cracker. Okay? All right. Let's see. Going 13, 11 to 13. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal, which you have, male, male shall be the Lord's. And every firstborn of the donkey, you shall redeem it with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. All the firstborn 
of man among your sons you shall redeem. So they redeem it, they would have an animal sacrifice for that. Which sounds, for some of you, again in the front, might sound kind of weird, but that's what they did back then. It's a different world than it is today. Today, now, if you want to get like hamburgers, you go to the supermarket. Well, they, they, didn't, they couldn't do that. So it was a different world. Okay. I love having the girls in front. I hope it's okay with you guys if I stop every now and again. But God's making a point, you know, just again with the firstborn. The firstborn are his. They have to be bought back. They have to be redeemed. Hmm, redeemed. Where have, we heard, where have we heard that before, huh? Yeah. All along what we call the Old Testament, there are references to our salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how he redeemed us by his sacrifice. Okay, Exodus 13, 14 to 16. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? That you shall say to him, by the strength of the hand of the Lord, oh, by strength the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons... I redeem, and it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by the strength of the hand of the Lord, for by strength the hand of the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Yeah. Every year it's a remembrance because as children are coming up, they don't know anything. They have, to, they have to hear the story, but if they see something, if they experience, if they live through a meal that's symbolic, or in this case, there's a sacrifice that's done, they can explain. In explaining that, they get to tell the story. And it's a way that it, that story can be remembered, particularly when you have a people, many of whom, most of whom probably didn't read. The way that they remembered was through ritual, through repeating the same thing over and over again, things that were symbolic, like the Passover, like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, there's a quote, there's um, a um, Bible professor and theologian, a guy named Don Carson. Sometimes you see D.A. Carson, same person. And he says, and this is part of what he said about the gospel, a larger piece, God, precisely because love is the very essence of his character, takes the initiative and prepared for the coming of his, his own son by raising up a people who, by covenantal stipulations, temple worship, systems of sacrifice, and a priesthood by kings and by prophets, are taught something about what God is planning and what he expects. So the Passover meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the sacrifice for the firstborn, circumcision, all of these things are being used by God to teach the people about what he's planning and what he expects. 
And there's going to be more of this because there's going to be the Ten Commandments and then all of the other commandments. There's going to be the tabernacle and later on the temple. There's going to be a series of prophets. There are going to be a series of kings, some good, some evil. And you could say that about the prophets too. There are some good prophets and we read about them. Certainly some of the books bear their name, but then there are some, and some of them are named, who are evil um, through scripture. But God is teaching us through the good prophets and the good kings and everything about the faith, what he is planning and what he expects. The seven feasts that Pastor Vinny was talking about, you have three, or was it four, I believe, that he said were, were about things that have happened. And then we have three more about things that are to come. And I love that. So, um, moving on to 13, 17 to 19. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. So that came to pass. What Joseph said came to pass, and indeed, his bones were being carried. And I say bones because by this time, that's all that was left, and they were carried in a box of some kind out of Egypt. Let's take a look at the geography here. You see that top path, the, the top black path along the coastline? That's one path. That's actually the shortest path. And that takes them to the cities of the Philistines. And the Philistines were um, people who had come from Phoenicia. They'd come across the Mediterranean. Uh, they were warlike, but they... They always existed in a confederation of different cities. Each city had its own king. So they, never, they had a hard time coming together for anything except for maybe a battle here and there. So they did engage in war later on with the nation of Israel. And they were tough, but they, they weren't able to come together and unify and, and create an empire like other nations did. But they were good fighters, and they were really good at making weapons. And even though the Hebrews had seen what God had done, God knew their hearts, and he felt correctly that they didn't have a stomach for war. They weren't ready to walk up. They weren't going to trust that God would take care of them, that God would go before them and to uh, take care of the Philistines. We find later in the Bible that God's done that over and over again, he did, but this people would not believe. So instead, he took them by another path, and not by one of those other black paths that you see up here. Instead, see that red path? It kind of starts up and then it goes down, then it goes up and it does a loop, and then it goes up. That's the path that they took and that's why it took 40 years, okay? Instead of being a really quick trip, 
God took him a really long way. <clears throat> he had some things to do with his people, and he needed time to do it. And, and how are they going to figure out where to go? Well, there's an answer to that. Exodus 13, 20 to 22. So they took their journey from Sakoth and they camped at Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night before the people. So they needed to follow God's leading, and God's leading was by a literal pillar of cloud, a literal pillar of fire. I think there have been some movies. Uh, I know that there was a recent one about the Exodus. I didn't watch it, but I'm sure that there was some sort of cloud. Um, and, and so God gave the Hebrews something to look at and something to follow. And that's how God was able to take them on the path that I... Um, that path, that, that long and winding path because God was leading him because he needed to do things. Wouldn't it be nice if God could do that, could sort of give us a pillar of fire, or give us something to see that would make it obvious what we were supposed to do? He doesn't do that now because we have something better. We've got scripture, like what we're talking about tonight. We've got God's spirit in our hearts. But this generation of the children of, the children of Israel had trouble listening to God, trusting God, uh, following God. So what can we take away? Well, God remembers everything perfectly. Okay, and that um, he remembered what the Egyptians had done to the Hebrew babies, and one of his judgments, one of his plagues, involved death. Secondly, God judges according to what people or nations do. And he did that with Egypt. And he does that throughout scripture. He does it with people too. And God's people are recipients of and witnesses to his grace, mercy, and salvation. The children of Israel, they didn't really have much to say. And in this case, they didn't need to say anything because the people who had joined them from outside of the Hebrews saw what God had done. Today, though, we have a different job. Um, when we're telling people about Jesus, we have, we're telling them about what he's done for us and part of what our story is. I started thinking about that a lot. And I'm thinking, why am I thinking about this? Well, let's run with it. Um, we're witnesses to what God has done in our lives. Remember that. Take it every once in a while, think about the things. Maybe you can write them down, list them. I'm going to do that because I, I feel like I want to do a better job if somebody were to ask me, well, Bill, what's God done in your life? I, I don't want to say, well, let me, let me think about it. Oh, oh, oh. I don't want to do that. I want to be able to say something else like, I believed as a young age, so it, this is the only thing I knew. And, and I did learn some things about that I was a sinner, and I didn't, you know, I kind of knew that, but I kind of thought I was a pretty good kid, and I went to church, so that must make me special. I certainly believed in what Jesus had done, but as I, I went along in life, I realized that, yeah, I was a sinner because I did things that were wrong, I thought things that were wrong, and, and 
and, and things happened during my life where I really needed to trust God. And God stepped out in a lot of different ways, moving me from one state to another, putting me in a situation where I could be a caregiver to, to my sister who I never would have thought that. Um, having people step out and care for me that I never would have ex anticipated. And, and even until today, I want to have a story of what God's done for me. Um, and I hope that one takeaway is that you can think about what God's done for you. And maybe someday somebody will ask you. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you. Let me tell you.